Hello, I'm Edwina Johnson, Director of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to a podcast of the session Growing Up Queer in Australia, featuring S.L. Lim, Evelyn Ida Morris and Navo Zissen in conversation with Benjamin Law, recorded live at the 2019 Byron Writers Festival. For more information about the festival, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. Benjamin Law, and I'm so pleased to be here with you all on Bunjalung land. Um, First Nations Australians, like the Bunjalung people, um, have been telling stories for over 65,000 years, um, the oldest storytelling civilizations on this planet. Um, and we, as non-Indigenous Australians, are very grateful, particularly grateful to elders past and present, that we can continue telling stories here on what is and what will always be Aboriginal land. Um, so g'day, welcome, and jingiwala to you all in this, the year of Indigenous languages. Um, Australia, of course, is a country where so many of our stories can be easily hidden, erased, buried, dismissed. Arguably, this is a nation of forgetting and erasing, and I think the only way to remedy that is to continue to tell our stories. Um, and a lot of that history that's often dismissed or raised are, are queer stories too. Um, and so it's a real pleasure to have our three guests here with us today who tell their stories across literature, memoir, and songwriting. So let's meet them now. Uh, over here, uh, already described by some as our version of Sally Rooney, our first guest was born in Singapore, moved to Sydney at the age of one, and has spent a good part of her life toggling back and forth between the two. At university, she edited the magazine Thurunka, graduated with an economics degree, and lived the life of a suit for a while before going freelance. Her novel, Real Differences, was published this year and asks at its core all of its readers, what is our life for? And No Time Wasted, next year, Revenge, uh, will be published in 2020. Please welcome S.L. Lim. Next to SL, we have a passionate activist and writer who has shared their perspectives and insights into being transgender and non-binary on everywhere between the morning show on Channel 7 with their mum to SBS to the Safe Schools resource All of Us and the New York Times, no less. They released their memoir, Finding Nouveau, on gender and sexuality at the age of 21, overachiever, and are unafraid to delve into difficult and often taboo topics, whether it's in schools, in the corporate sphere, or in their debut op-ed piece in the Saturday paper to, uh, tomorrow, is that right? Please welcome Nouveau Zizan, everyone. And last but not least, um, our final guest is a gifted musician who previously made music under the moniker of Pikelet, um, an experimental pop act that won the Ages Music of Victoria Award for Best Experimental Musician and was shortlisted for the Australian Music Prize for their record STEM. They're also the co-founder of Listen, an advocacy group focused on creating discourse around gender diversity and politics in Australian music. And most recently, they released their first self-titled album focusing uh, wholly on piano. Please welcome Evelyn Ida Morris. 
So this is going to be a pretty broad-ranging conversation about sexuality and gender identity and growing up and making work and telling stories. So where do we begin? I think maybe we should begin at the beginning and what growing up was like for each of us to get a taste or a sense of where and when we're talking about and also what were the stories you were consuming and were there queer, non-binary, um, gender diverse characters and stories that you were consuming. Navo, I might start with you. Give us a sense of where and when you grew up and the stories that you surrounded yourself with. Sure, yeah. So I grew up in uh, Nam in Melbourne and I grew up in Caulfield or uh, intimately known as the Bagel Belt. Uh, so, you know, in small Jewish community and um, I feel like I had a pretty like open childhood I wasn't necessarily really restricted on what I, on what I could and couldn't do but I did feel a lot of expectations around being assigned female at birth and what it actually means to be a young girl growing up in our society and I certainly didn't see myself represented anywhere for many 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 years I didn't think that I mean I guess maybe there were representations of tomboys mm -hmm. A little bit but that was often discarded as a phase or uh, invalidated or looked down upon. I mean it's, it's one thing not to have representations but did you have even the vocabulary when you were growing up? Did you know about, um, about the concept of being trans, no. of being non-binary and, and if not like when did that enter your lexicon? Yeah I mean this is the really interesting thing I think about like theory versus just kind of inherently knowing something and feeling something in a in a really visceral way uh, so I was telling people I was a boy when I was four and that was the only language I really had to talk about my gender I, I think if I could have and would have I would have told people I was non-binary mm -hmm. um, at four but I I didn't know that language yet <laughs> so you know I told people I was a boy and that was my way of expressing um, my gender diversity and I don't think that that language came into my lexicon until I would have been maybe 16 mm. and I had already been out in the LGBTIQA community for a few years at that point. So I think that also says a lot about our understandings around trans and gender diversity within LGBTIQA communities is also quite limited. Yeah. So I didn't have any exposure to trans people and, you know, when I realised I was trans in 2013, even though that's not a very long time ago, socio-politically and culturally it's almost a completely different landscape. I had absolutely no role models, no one to look to around gender diversity and as a result had to sort of cut down parts of myself or reimagine futures because I didn't have anyone to set the pavement for me. And going back to when you're, say, in your mid-teens and you're discovering... Um, well, I guess the vocabulary and what would become your community mm. um, then, where, where were you actually finding that access point? Like, was it, was it online? Was it through pop culture? Where, where were you getting your information? Um, Tumblr was mm -hmm. probably a big part. And I feel like if there's any teenagers in the audience, they'll be like, yep, that's where I live. And for, and for those who don't live there, what yeah, is so Tumblr? Tumblr? Why is Tumblr what and how? Tumblr? <laughs> what is Tumblr? Um, I haven't actually been on it for many, many years now, but it's a social media site that's like blogging and sharing lots of sad memes and um, inspirational quotes and yeah, things like that. Um, but... 
I think that's where I found a lot of community. I found a lot of community on YouTube. When, you know, mainstream media doesn't represent diversity, where do you go? Uh, I feel like to media forms where the creators are the people starring in them. And so that's where I found gender diverse people and, and young trans people. But even then it was mostly US centric and I didn't mm. find a lot of people that were Australian based. Yeah. yeah. I want to throw it over to you, Evelyn. Um, you were playing, correct me if I'm wrong, you were playing piano since you were three. Is that right? Yes. So, so music has been core to your life. And tell us about the, the kind of music you grew up with and whether there was kind of um, artists, whether then or even in retrospect, that you now realise were speaking to you on, on some level. Um, yeah, I mean, my parents had a pretty limited record collection. I think there was like 20. Can record. you give us a taste of what was in there? Cat uh, Stevens, Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath. I think there was a bit of, um, oh, no, it was pretty, yeah, the Beatles. There was a bit of the Beatles. And, like, I guess the way that I found my queerness was, like, I was imagining I was all the men in those bands and I wasn't, like, um, I definitely didn't identify with any of the female singer-songwriters mm-hmm. that, were, that were in the collection, although there weren't many, I mm. must say. Um yeah, but like also I was sort of exposed to Triple J because uh-huh. like at, I was pr- I was like pre-internet um, at, as a teenager and the internet was invented when I was about 16, I think, or like was, you know, in people's homes at that time. The first dial-up modems were yeah, just coming much. in. I think we were I can, of the same I did vintage. a really good imitation of the sound of dial-up <laughs> when I was young <laughs> and I, I swore there was like somebody secretly saying the word die inside of it. <laughs> I'll I'll show you later but um (laughs) but like yeah so so I couldn't look to the internet I couldn't look to um the music collection at home although we did have a lot of ripped off tapes and I loved the Bee Gees because that felt like really Mm. (laughs) (laughs) I really Really felt the Bee Gees like that you know there were men that had really high voices you know it sort of it felt right but like like what I'm saying is I was kind of looking for language that I definitely was nowhere near Mm. and I wasn't even really um I was queer I was seeing you know girls from Mm. like a young age but um that was not something I would tell anyone ever and then and then an interesting thing happened for me where like queerness uh, in terms of like sexuality and queerness in terms of gender really kind of clashed because I was being told like oh if you're sleeping if you're you know kissing girls then you're a lesbian but Mm -hmm. I was like but I don't feel like a lesbian because I felt genderqueer Mm. so it was like but I didn't know what that was so I was really conflicted and then I just repressed all of it (laughs) and then and unfortunately the thing that happens to a lot of younger people which happened to me was you sort of just internalize this idea that you're just like wrong you don't really get um you don't really get what's going on so you just go like there's something wrong like I don't know what it is and and that's really what I attribute to the hundreds of dollars I've spent on therapy as an adult. <laughs> <laughs> what about the music sphere itself? Because I don't think it's any secret that it's pretty, like, it's a bit of a dude ranch, right? Yeah. Like, and, and we're talking about, like, cis dudes, especially yeah. that... And white dudes. Yeah, yeah, so cisgender white men have kind of dominated the industry, both in terms of players and behind the scenes. And you're performing a lot, you know, through through um, your 20s onwards uh, mm-hmm. as, as Pikelet. Um, and, you know, when I was seeing your gigs, like often like everyone else was just this sea of yeah. um, that other <coughs> demographic we were talking about. So how do you navigate that space? Well, I guess also music was because it was so intrinsic to my identity and kind of I guess 
a lot of the time when I was exploring improvisation when I was really young on piano, I was kind of looking for stuff that I didn't have words for. So it's always been really good for me in terms of connecting to a like wordless space. And um, I was playing drums in punk bands to try and be like a cool, tough guy. And then it was like, oh, I'm surrounded by all these men and I don't really feel like I'm one of them and they don't definitely don't treat me like I'm one of them. So then I started doing Pikelet because I was like, oh, I'll do something like really femme mm. as kind of a rejection of that. And then that didn't feel right either. So like now that I've started putting out my own albums like under my own name and it's like really connecting to that wordless uh, exploration that I had when I was younger, it feels much more like I've kind of centred my identity around non-binary. And like I didn't find out what non-binary was until I ran a feminist organisation in my early 30s. And what happened? Like what did you discover? How did you discover the language about around non-binary identity? Well, I was like, I was pretty naive. I was starting this feminist organisation thinking like gender is binary. Um, and then like thankfully it was really a great way to be introduced to the trans community because they're all like, you're not talking about us. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah, that's true. Let's talk. And then it started to be this really great conversation about how do we do intersectionality in, in um, feminism. And that's when I started being introduced to words like non-binary and and stuff like that. And so it was really new for me. And unfortunately, I didn't feel like I could come out until I left Listen, because it was like, I didn't want to be seen as like trying to, I don't know, be covert or something. Yeah, It's hard to explain, but it was like a very tense time. I was up on, on uh, the Facebook groups moderating till 5am every night, like I pretty much lost my mind. But the organisation, just to give you a more broad understanding of it, was called Listen and we we really just wanted to include people on the stage and behind the scenes uh, in music that were not just the cis white men that were always there. Yeah. So we did all kinds of stuff like conferences and policy change and writing. And, mm. and we're starting to talk about the way in which, um, you know, our backgrounds, our gender identities, our sexualities intersect with our work. And I want to talk about that more across the board. But before we do, I want to uh, throw it over to you, Hello. SL. Uh, give us an understanding of uh, where you were raised. Did you already split time between Sydney and Singapore at a, at a young age? And what were the kind of um, stories you were consuming? Yes, from quite a young age, and the kind of stories that I was consuming were almost wall-to-wall -wall British children's and adult literature. Um, Are we, what, what kind of stuff were we talking about? Like Enid blyton stuff yeah, as a kid? Yeah, when I was small, there was definitely a lot of Enid blyton stuff, a lot of Roald Dahl. I read Peter Singer very young, which does not fall into that category, but which has had an ongoing effect on my um, so you were reading moral like and psychiatric the, well-being. The, the, the twits and animal liberation yes, <laughs> at the same time. Yes. <laughs> um, yes. So, in terms of, I guess, a sense of identity, or terms of, in terms of a sense of gender and sexuality, one of the interesting things about writing books is it's an experience where. It's probably as close as you can get to being a disembodied consciousness, which, you know, escapes to a certain extent the embodied nature of being a person in the world who other people see and other people read and respond to in, a different, in different ways, which informs your own responses. So for me, there's this tension between striving for that escape velocity, I guess, striving for that ideal of, you know, pure human empathy disembodied from annoying crap, but on the other hand, acknowledging that we are people 
and we are seen and we exist in time and space with, you know, molecules which make up us. And <laughs> yes, so gender is clearly very relevant. What was the question? <laughs> <laughs> that was so good. I'm not sure, but I like where we ended up. Yeah. Um, <laughs> let's talk, I mean, you, you identify as queer, uh, yes. you use uh, she, her and they, them pronouns. And I'm wondering, uh, did you see representations of the kind of queerness you identify with in works that you were either growing up with as a kid or a teenager? Absolutely not. And because I'm a person who has lived and continued to live, you know, the greater portion of my life in my head and in rejection of this strange thing that we call them, you know, the physical world and other people, um, that was really quite formative or non-formative of my development, this lack of representation. And I think that over time that has definitely improved both through access but also me discovering, you know, writers like Sarah Schulman, who's a wonderful, you know, American queer writer, or writers like Jeanette Winterson, who, you know, does sex really well, does love really well, does lesbians really well. Um, yeah, so I think there's, there's, a, there's a mixture of a lack of access to media, but also a lack of consciousness of media. The books exist, and we have always been writing our stories. We just yeah. haven't necessarily had a forum for other people to discover them, and yet here we are. Let, I mean, let's talk about those two things, access and consciousness, because you're straddling time between Singapore yes. and, and Sydney. And, and in Singapore, uh, homosexuality more broadly is, is still technically illegal. illegal. Yes. And, so, yes. and so as a result, in terms of being able to access even someone like Jeanette Winterson or the stories that you yeah, need you and just want wouldn't. to... Yeah, yeah. Right, yeah, right. Yeah, so, um, you know, my... Immediate family, who are Malaysian Chinese, in some ways very liberal, very, um, well, smaller liberal, very progressive, very thoughtful people, but in other ways that instinctive sort of bodily revulsion towards queerness does exist. So I remember one relative told me, um, seeing the Mardi Gras on TV as a child, that if I ever did something like that, she would kill herself and me, wow. um, which was definitely an incentive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So Sing Singapore is in a very weird place right now. I don't know how relevant this is to our particular discussion yeah, in Australia, but yeah. So so Singapore has this concept of of. Asian values, which has very much been taken up by the ruling party, which I would describe as an illiberal authoritarian regime. It's not quite a dictatorship, but it's not not a dictatorship. <laughs> um, and, but on the other hand, this narrative of you know the West being enlightened and progressive and the East being regressive is quite false, and you can see that quite clearly in this case. You know, Singapore prior to British colonization did not have laws against homosexuality. So that law against criminalizing basically gay sex between men was inherited from the British, and yet it has been taken up in an indigenous sense um, and reconceived as Asian values and is understood by many of the people promoting it as Asian values. But at the same time, there's a very strong evangelical influence coming from the US and elsewhere, which is also reinforcing this legal prohibition, which has a social effect. So it is a very tangled web. And that is my answer. <laughs> Sorry, this is terrible. SL, I, I will stay on you before I go back to Nouveau, but um, uh, let's talk about the intersection between your queerness and your work, because I imagine that uh, for some of us, you know, it, it's something that, uh, you know, our work is one thing and our identity is another. And for, on the other end of the spectrum, it's like, well, we can't divorce the two at all, especially when you're writing first-person, yeah. say, memoir. Mm -hmm. For you as a novelist, 
tell us about the ways in which your queerness does or doesn't inform what you write. Well, I think that that might be a question more for the id than the superego, because my superego would say <laughs> that I am in total control here and that I have absolute... Um, absolute ability to control my craft and that in fact there is no presence of the author's personal life or proclivities in my work and I have transcended your mortal um, frailties. <laughs> wow, we have but, gone um, deep Freud philosophical <laughs> and I love I, it. I, I think that that is untrue and I mean it's interesting to observe some of my work you know as an outsider because I wrote this first book, Real Differences, a little while ago and my second book, Revenge, which is coming out with Transit Lounge next year, I also wrote a little while ago. So my first book has pretty much no queerness in it and the queerness which there is is seen from the outside and at that time I was in a heterosexual relationship which was an odd choice um and looking at these two books you know you've got maybe you know 200,000 words in total I haven't counted but there isn't a single heterosexual sex scene and there's quite a bit of queer sex. And it is interesting that I wrote both of these books while living an externally heterosexual and um, gender-conforming life, and that if you had asked me at the time, I would probably have identified as queer but not put a lot of emphasis on it. But nonetheless, my um, clearly something was going on and it was affecting my work but maybe I'm not the person to ask about that. <laughs> but just to, just to clarify, yeah. it's not like you went in with a mission statement of, represent of representing queerness in the work. It, it kind of permeated nonetheless. Yeah, and that's very difficult because, you know, your work will come from your life. Your work will come from some representation and rearrangement of your understanding of the world, which comes from your interaction with the world, and that is necessarily inflected with queerness. At the same time, you know, there's this concept of a burden of representation whereby people from minority communities, you know, their work is inherently and only read through that lens of, you know, mm. queerness. So literally everything you do is an expression of Asianness or being queer or whatever, which is really kind of the opposite, in a way, of what mm. you're trying to do when writing a novel. So that is difficult. Yeah. I mean, Navo, I imagine you come at it um, from a contrasted point of view because often you're writing um, first-person, personal experience, and you actually started doing this quite, quite young as well. So, so tell me about what set you off on that kind of, on that kind of process. Yeah, well, I think... I, like, I really agree with, with everything SL was saying. I think that there's this, you know, there's this expectation of marginalised bodies to be educators mm. and to be spokespeople and to be representative of, of everyone in your community. Um, and I guess I took that and I rolled with it because mm -hmm. I was like, well, people are already expecting this of me. Um, I may as well reclaim my voice in that. And I think as well because I'd come from years of doing speaking work and being interviewed and having my story rewritten. There was a lot of interviews where it was just like the media sensationalising my story in a sort of before and after narrative, losing a daughter, gaining a son, like really gross language that I very much didn't connect with. And so I thought, you know what, if my story is going to be told anyway, I may as well tell it and I may as well tell it properly. And, and did you have any reservations about doing that? Yeah. What were they? Um, lots. <laughs> I mean, look, I think I've got pretty thick skin when it comes to transphobia and the masses because I live and breathe that all the time. 
um, and it's everywhere. And I think this country likes to convince itself that it's very progressive and very open-minded, but we live in a deeply racist, sexist, transphobic and homophobic nation that is, that is built on the backs of genocide that has still not been um, addressed in any kind of real tangible ways. Um, and so I think that I live and breathe that kind of mentality towards my identity, but I don't have such a thick skin when it comes to my own community and what they think about me. And um, right, yeah. So that and was, was that my something biggest... that you were anticipa- anticipating when you started out, or something that you were encountering later. Because I mean, that's no, that's a it was huge... anti- it was an anticipation. Yeah. And and I think the thing about like living with anxiety as well is that it almost doesn't matter if the threat is real or not. Mm. Um, the way that your brain makes it real. It, it still lands in your body in the same way. So, so whether someone is actually criticizing me or whether I'm just anticipating that they might, mm. um, my body still responds in the same kind of way and I still internalize it in the same way. You were targeted in a pretty significant way. Yeah, during... so that did happen. Yeah, yeah. that was real. I yeah. mean, I mean, we're, to- <laughs> we're talking about within the community, but say outside of your community, you were targeted in a pretty significant way um, during the safe schools kind of brouhaha. So just to recap... Yep. Safe Schools was um, a resource that uh, was available to teachers and parents. It was never a compulsory thing to be taught to students. And in fact, there was um, an optional resource that was developed called All of Us. And you and sharing your story, um, first person, was, was, was a part of that resource. What happened when this, uh, this resource that you all developed, put out in good faith, was reviewed by independent curriculum experts? So I'm putting on my... Journal's hat on now. Um, what happened when you were part, when you kind of became embroiled in this moral panic? How did you mm. navigate that? Well, I think what's funny is that I've always approached my activism from a very kind of gen- gentle standpoint, I think. Like, I'm, I consider myself a relatively radical queer activist and I, and I want to tear systems down and build them up from scratch. Like, I'm not interested in, like, assimilationist reform. But... I do think that I approach things with a lot of empathy and with a lot of understanding and gentleness. And that video was me at 17, so gentle and so kind. And I was just absolutely torn to shreds. And the Australian Christian Lobby wrote about how I was coercing young people into sex change surgeries, and um, which, for, like, just so you know, don't exist. There's no such thing as a sex change surgery. It just doesn't exist. What, there do, are what, lots what do you of mean by that? Expand like, on that. There are lots of different surgeries that you can engage in to change your body and to affirm your gender, but a sex change surgery does not exist. Um, and... If it did, I'm sure people would love it. But like one kind of one-stop shop where you just go in and come out totally different, like doesn't doesn't exist. Um, and I hadn't even had any surgeries at that point, so to be coercing anyone into something I hadn't engaged in either was confusing. Um, but anyway, I was referred to as a video, not a person, and then I was referred to as a transgender, which was generous because at least I had graduated from a media form into a noun of some kind. This is your Pokemon um, evolution. Yeah, into a transgender. But the best part was that they had referred to me as a minor transgender because I was underage. And my and you're like, excuse me, I'm major. Yeah, my friends were like, you're a major transgender now. And I was like, yeah. Um, so yeah, that really shattered, I think, a lot of like um, youthful naivety I had around activism and around change making. Uh, and that made me approach things differently and I think if they could see how fucking angry I am now uh they would yeah I don't know how they would respond to me now considering I was very gentle and kind then 
I want to go back to your um, how you've changed approach since. But before we do, mm -hmm. I want to take it over to to you, Evelyn, because um, you know I've, I've I've been a huge fan of your work as Pikelet, and this record um, I'm a huge fan of in a very different way because it marks a very kind of different sound and approach. Um, and you've talked um, in interviews about how, you know, that's a kind of purposeful thing, um, how this is a departure from your previous work um, for reasons to do with exploration. Can you can you tell us about that? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's kind of what I was saying before about having played around with different gender roles and then coming to a place where I felt sort of more... I guess that, that whole album was written at a time when I didn't know what non-binary was, but I was, like, really unhappy. And I was like, what is this unhappiness? And I was exploring it in, in wordless songs. Um, but, like, it kind of wasn't until, like, I met um, Nevo through Listen and a lot of other people uh, who are also genderqueer. And I was just like, oh, I feel so, like at home around these people. I remember having that conversation years ago. Yeah, the yeah. Very start. yeah. And it was it was really important for me just meeting everybody at that level where like everyone was just doing their thing, being in their own skin. And and it I wouldn't have put out that album of songs which really expressed gender dysphoria pretty like what's the word? Like very viscerally mm. for lack of a better word. Um I wouldn't have put that out if I hadn't met a lot of other people who were, you know, showing me what it is to be a genderqueer person and be proud of it. Um, so for me, like, I'd, yeah, the role models I had are still around and I see them all the time at gigs and stuff. And it's it's part of the reason as well that when there is difficulty inside of the community, it like, I had similar feelings. Like, I'd be like, oh, I really desperately want you to, like, approve of me. And, like, there were certain people that were going through their own struggle and, there's these like infights inside of queerness. So it's not like a perfect process, but um, I feel like that album just was me letting go of any concern mm. about any of it and being like, it's totally fine. Everything that I am is totally fine. And I mean, it's still a work in progress, that whole like, I'm totally fine thing. But um, <laughs> and, and, and similarly to SL, was it less that you were going in with a mission statement? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And I think that that's like something that's really also kind of affirming about having a creative practice as a queer person is that even though everything around me ever since I was born was telling me to repress and not be who I am, the music still ended up telling me that, you know, mm. and I think that, that creative practices are really important for that. Finding a way to just let go of crafting your identity and instead just developing this thing that you can put outside in the world and then look at and be like, what am I? Mm. You know, and building on something that Navo said before, I mean, this, um, you know, a, a perceived obligation to be an educator and and a spokesperson. Yeah, yeah. Um, you've been talking about uh, non-binary identity a lot in the discussion of this record, and is that something that you embrace? Yeah, completely? because I don't want to educate people. Like, and and personally, the process of being interviewed around that album was quite dreadful a mm. lot of the time because. I wasn't even ending up being asked about the album. I was being asked to explain what non-binary is. And that, to me, was so infuriating. And there's a couple of times, because my partner's also a journalist, where we would say to people, like, hey, maybe it's better to just do that research prior to the interview right. so that Evelyn can, like, talk about their music. Mm. Um, those journalists would react with extreme disdain. Like, they were like, don't tell me how to do my job, blah, blah, blah. Right. And it's like, I, I don't think it's, um, like, we're we're out there trying to be, uh, we're trying to exist, we're trying to exist inside of our artwork. And it's not really fair to have to have 10 levels of meta 
awareness mm. about that. Like you want to just be like, I made some music. Oh, yeah, yeah, like, yeah, and yeah. then like that be it. You don't want to have to be like, I made some music and I'm non-binary and blah, blah, blah. But the reason I ended up talking about it was because I was like, I do think it's important inside of music to identify that we exist and that we have always existed. It's just that we weren't put on the stages. We weren't written about in newspapers. Like, and so that that's why I kind of decided to claim it because I'd already kind of created a career as a cis person as mm-hmm. far as everyone else could see. So I was like, well, now, you know, by the way, I'm not cis. So I thought I may as well. Because I just want it to be easier for so many of the non-binary artists that I know that play tiny gigs in Melbourne and struggle to leave the house a lot of the time and other times just like, you know, it, it's I see people struggling and I'm like, I can actually make it easier for them to have a go next time. Let's say on you, I mean, let's look <coughs> into the future. Um, we were talking before about how the Australian music industry and probably like the music industry in general has kind of been d- dominated by a specific kind of like cisgender male demographic. Do you, do, you, do you see change in the music industry because of these conversations that we are starting to have because of the, uh, a, a raised level of consciousness? Yeah, I, I've, I've seen pretty significant change given that I've been playing music for since I was like 16, so that you're doing gigs, that is. So like 20 years. And I, I, I know that the last five years are very different. But, like, at the same time, what I think is most important is not to be like, okay, well, I feel better about doing music, so I'm just going to, like, leave it at that. Yep. You know, like, it, it has to be very much a thing where you go, like, well, I feel a bit more comfort, so I'm going to also then make sure there are pathways for other people mm. that are still struggling. And, and you know, like, centering voices that have way less privilege than I do has been a really big part of my learning curve as an activist. Yeah. You, you mentioned five years. What, what, what happened five, five years ago? <laughs> well, that's when I kind of entered the game, right. like started, listen, I guess it was five years ago. It was like 2013 or 14. Uh-huh. What year is it now? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, five or six years. Uh, yeah. I just think there's been much more conversation about it. And, and honestly, when I was younger, I was putting on makeup when I never wanted to I was like taking off my glasses because like every movie that you see when you're a teenager in the 90s is like they had a makeover and now they're beautiful because they took the glasses off um so like I was wearing contact lenses and hating it I was putting on makeup I was bleaching my hair and having it really long and and femme and like doing all that because I was told that I would have a successful music career if I did those things yeah and and like that's the difference now is that I can be like I am going to dress how I want to and it's not a very big difference (laughs) like that's only a small token difference I think there's still so much to be done and especially given that we're on stolen land and all of that stuff you know it's like there's so much more work that needs to be done Um, I'm going to circle back to Univo Um, you mentioned before this, this kind of palpable anger that you've experienced that kind of shedding of naivety um and you know i've got a theory that the only way that you can make sense of anger is is to use it uh in your work and i'm wondering if that's something that you're doing now hmm it's a good question um i think anger is a really complicated thing i think it has a lot of levels um i think Anyone who's grown up in a patriarchal society as someone cultured, socialised or identifying as a woman at any point has internalised a lot of misogyny around the validity of our anger Mm. um, and whether we're allowed to be angry. And I think women (coughs) and femmes are constantly put down for anger as it being 
oh, you're probably just on your period or you're just being really emotional, really hormonal. Um, and so I think we, we repress our own anger. We repress that process. Um, and then I think when you add on to that so many other layers, I mean, I'm not a person of color and I think being a person, like an angry person of color has its own really deep um, political kind of ramifications. And Niu Kagari wrote an amazing um, article about it recently. And so I think there's a lot to unpack with anger. I think that anger is a, a really powerful activist tool. I think that someone like myself who is still read as a man more often than not needs to be careful with that anger too mm. and how I express that because I don't want to look like an angry man. I think we have enough of them. Um, <laughs> They're not my favorite demographics, so I don't, <laughs> it's not the circle I want to be in. But then again, I always have these moments where I'm like, oh my God, are people going to think I'm like a cis man or like a cis straight man? And my friends are always like, have you seen yourself? Like, <laughs> no, I don't think that's a, a risk. Um, and and just, uh, just quickly before yeah. we circle back to SL, um, you know, you do a lot of work. We're talking about growing up queer and you actually do a lot of direct work with young people kids and teenagers how do you start this conversation with with younger australians oh i just love young people so much they're so much better than adults like i just sorry no offense um but i just <laughs> love them they're so good uh they're like the change makers of the future and the present they are so politically engaged. They're so switched on. Um, they're so wonderful. Like, they have imaginations that we as adults can't even begin to comprehend. Mm. And they have so much less unlearning to do. Um, they're so ready to, to relearn and begin learning. And th there's this defensiveness that I think isn't always there. I mean, it depends. If you work with teenagers, sometimes there's, like, extra. Um, but I think with young people... I think just like offering young people options is such a radical, amazing thing to do. And I think that sometimes the mainstream sees options as coercion. And I think that's really interesting. Like mm. I, I think there's a lot of coercion with young people around what lives they should lead, whether they should get married and have kids, that they have to go to university and follow this certain pathway. And then as soon as you offer some alternative, that's seen as coercive. Yeah. It's like, no, I'm actually just presenting it's some like alternative. the pot calling the kettle black. Yeah, you know, it's just whole, like that whole thing of somebody. I, there's probably a better one. Glass houses. I don't know. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's yeah. like it's like they're defensive about it because that's what they're doing. You know. Yeah, and so like I love talking to young people about polyamory, for example, and that like they don't have to be in monogamous relationships forever. That there are other options. There are ways to ethically approach queering the way that we see things um and so my approach with young people i guess is is more often than not with with gentleness and empathy and i think that especially like angry teenage boys um i really feel the pain in their anger some days it's easier than others some days i i have like i i'm just having a hard day and i don't want to deal with teenage boys but um other days like I really genuinely believe that the rigid gender expectations we have in society are limiting for everyone. Mm. I really believe that. Yeah. And I think whether you're trans or not, you have at some point felt restricted by those expectations. And so when I see young boys feel angry and frustrated, I think it's as a result of having to kill the parts of themselves that are soft and sensitive mm. in order to fit into those boxes. And I, and I feel sorry about that. Uh, the idea of gendered expectations is a really good segue back to you, SL, because I, I'm curious, um, you have 
use your initials as um, as your authorial name. You know, yes. you're, you're in this really interesting point of your career where you've got like not just one but two books coming out in as many years and you've gone with SL. What's the decision behind that? The decision behind that is that every time someone takes a photo of you, they take a little bit of your soul and every time someone knows your name and you don't know their name, they take another molecule and soon you'll have no molecules left. <laughs> Okay, uh, I was not expecting that and I really enjoyed it. Uh, this is, is the real conversation we should be having is molecule theft, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> that will be the next session molecule after appropriation. this one. Was there a, was there a gender uh, dimension to the decision too? Um, my name is not an Anglo name and it is actually more commonly a boy's name. My parents chose it completely phonetically because they had enough decolonial ideas that they didn't want a white name, but they also were sensible enough to realise that I would be around people and did not want me to spend an entire life having my name mispronounced. Um, so my name is not actually, in an Australian context, identifiable by gender anyway. So, nah, not really. It was yeah, yeah, just it's, it's, it's <laughs> actually more like yeah, culture it's more and language. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Yes. Do you think, though, because in the Australian publishing context, because you are going by your initials, because there is that tradition either of initialising your name yeah. or even in some cases taking on male names, yes. does that result in people at least possibly approaching your work differently? Is that a consideration for you at all? Um, I'm sure that it does have that result. It's not something which has particularly influenced my decision. I mean, my sense... As in a peripheral, you know, with peripheral but increasing exposure, my sense of the Australian literary scene slash discourse, quote unquote, is that it actually is quite, I mean, you know, clearly the audience is very heavily um, white female. Mm. Um, but in terms of the books which are read and bought and awarded prizes and valued, I'm sure there's a gendered dimension because everything is gendered. So, mm. yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm going to stay with you. Um, we're talking about growing up. And I, I sure, I'm sure we're all still growing up in our own ways. Yes. But if you were to go back in time and to give a younger version of yourself a pep talk mm. about, about queerness, about your craft, what would those conversations be? What would you want the younger version of yourself to know? Um, that's a good question about queerness and about craft. I think part of it would be about overcoming that internalised shame or that idea that a writer who is queer is inevitably and always and only writing about queerness and simply seeking out a broad diversity of queer voices like Sarah Shulman or Jeanette Winterson or, or I don't know, whatever and whatever and whatever, you know, I just <laughs> insert your favorite, insert favorite writer here. I don't want to name writers which people don't like because then you'll have a negative emotional experience and perhaps discount <laughs> what <laughs> further arguments. So I think, yeah, yeah. I, I think that there's a sort of critical mass thing where when there's one person in the room, they are read as representative and when there's many person, pe persons in the room, then there is a more, a greater understanding that people are people, that craft is craft, that art is art and that everyone makes it and... I think we move closer to an ability to write as if we were as free as the people who do not have these considerations and these limitations, because I think in a social sense they are still limitations, even as they are also strengths. I mean, it's a limitation in terms of the exposure you get, but it's a limitation as well, because I think that there is a degree of... Okay, I'm going to explain this in a very convoluted way, and I don't know if I'm going to get to where I intend to get... 
but I think that in a creative process of writing a novel, there's a degree of self-exposure and there's a degree of self-erasure. So you have to come to terms with the fact that everything you write is an emanation of your consciousness and your experience of the world, and therefore you're going to reveal things about yourself which you don't necessarily want to reveal and you're not in control of. And if you are queer and you are trying to hide that and you've developed that you know, daily practice of hiding fundamental aspects of yourself, then that's going to inhibit your work. At the same time, you know, part of the goal of writing a novel, I would say, is to develop your craft and your ability to enter into other experiences, you know, which fiction, it has not happened, you know, to enter into things which are not real and yet have a reality and an ability to, you know, explore aspects of reality. Yeah, there is self-erasure there and there is, there is a need to be comfortable enough with yourself, I suppose, to let go of yourself and be aware of other people. So, yeah. yeah. I think I think that that's really well put, and it also makes me yeah, think right. that why isn't someone like I don't know Jonathan Franzen having to navigate his heterosexuality or be talked about as a great heterosexual writer? Yes, constantly. there was a really there's actually a really wonderful um, essay by Barrett Brown, who is who did a few years in jail for exposing um, various forms of corporate 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 nefariousness in the military industrial complex in the U.S. But Barrett Brown is a very funny writer, and while he was in jail, he actually, and partly in solitary confinement, he actually released this series of reviews called the Barrett Brown, I think it was, it was like the Review of Arts Letters in Jail, and one of the essays that he wrote was about Jonathan Franzen, in which he described Franzen as the great king of the honkies. Um, <laughs> And that was yeah. That, that, that's one of my that's one of my favorite um, reviews of all time. So maybe maybe he is being asked to justify himself <laughs> a little bit more than in previous times. Uh, thank you so much, SL um, Navo. What about you? Go back to younger Navo. Uh, give them a pep talk about <laughs> identity, gender identity, and work. What would you tell them? I think when you're a memoirist, you're just sort of constantly talking to yourself in the past. Like I live in the past so much you know I wrote I wrote a book about my life I give lectures in schools and workplaces where I talk about my life story I'm like constantly in conversation with young me um there's so much of me that almost just wants to say like okay we can stop now like you you can stay in your time I'm gonna start moving forward now because I do feel this real tie to them and this inability to sort of progress because of how much I have to relive my trauma and like my story over and over again as an educational resource. Um, and I thought that writing the book would be the end of that, but it was actually the beginning. So um, I wrote the afterword of my book um, is a fiction piece where I go to a party with myself at different ages across different age brackets and, and we have conversations. Uh, so I guess it really depends on which age we're talking about mm. because 13-year-old me and I had a very different conversation to 16-year-old me versus 17. Um, like, they're all very different conversations. So 17-year-old me wants to know everything about my transition because that's where they're at. Um, but I think I would just say, and this is what I say to young people all the time, is that you're the boss of your own narrative. You're the boss of where you're at and your identity, and no one can actually tell you that or shape that for you more than yourself. Mm. And if you want to hear expanded versions of those conversations, you can buy Finding Navo at the <laughs> signing table uh, after this event. Uh, finally, same question um, to you, Evelyn. Um, go back in time. What conversations are you having with a younger version of yourself? Uh, well, I definitely feel like I'm still growing up 
and I think I probably will forever. Um, but I think, and I think I feel pretty detached from who I was when I was a kid. Mm. And that's kind of okay as well in the same way that like, we don't have to spend all of our time looking back at our childhoods because like you can't change it. But I mean, I don't know. I, I do, I do have conversations with that part of me and it's mainly, it's mainly just being like, everything's fine. <laughs> like if you do want to take your shirt off when your brothers take your sh- their shirts off, that's fine. Like, don't listen to people telling you that that's not the case. Um, And, like, you know, don't be scared of the big, bad, cis, white man. Just, like, tell him to get effed. Um, You know, like, I I was brought up with this whole thing of, like, you can't be... You can't behave like your brothers because you'll get damaged or hurt because your body is, like, a problem in the world. Like, you're not allowed to show parts of your body, blah, blah, blah. All that stuff that people assigned female are told... And that, I think, has led to this real narrative of, yeah, discomfort and hatred towards my own body. So I would just be like, do whatever you like. Mm. Pretty much, yeah. I reckon I would get uh, Nevo to talk to Mike. <laughs> 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 and be like, hey, can you maybe just like go back in time and, and, you know, keep playing piano. You're doing great. Well, the thing about that as well, though, is that like I know young me would be like, what do you know? Like, that's what young me would say. Totally. Young me would be like, um, excuse me, I'm a teenager, I know everything. Yeah, yeah. So, like, does it really, is there a point in going back and saying anything? <laughs> Please thank me, uh, join me in thanking our wonderful guests, SL, Nevo, and Evelyn. Thank you so much. Happy Writers Festival, everyone. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Mitis Festival 2019. You can find other recorded talks and discussions from the festival on our website, byronmitisfestival.com.